welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivikarnik. I'm Cristiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we speak about the upcoming COP28. Paul Dickinson and I are already in Dubai, just a few days to go. We speak to Nathaniel Stinnett from the Environmental Voter Project, and we have a poem from Hot Poets. Thanks for being here. We are barely two miles apart. Um, you just helpfully told me you're at this end of Dubai. I'm at the other end, so that's why we're not together. But I hope that I will see you over the next couple of days. I was in the Blue Zone yesterday. And just a warning to anyone who is coming to COP28, I went in at one end, the wrong end as it turned out. I simply walked across the site, got my badge, and then retraced my steps. And I looked at my phone afterwards and I'd walked 17,000 steps. It is big. You're going to be doing a lot of walking and you're going to get steps in, but it's a beautiful location. Um, so it will all be kicking off later this week. Paul, you will be so thrilled. You were such a walker. <laughs> yeah, you'll I'm be fine. Sure. That's probably this why is... you went to the cop, because you're going to get your steps this in. This is your moment. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to get my steps in, but I'm going to get them in in like 33 degrees wearing a suit. So that's not an ideal <laughs> circumstance, but it is what it is. But uh, no, no, I'm looking forward to uh, to, to uh, being Paul, able to... it's all incredibly air-conditioned, I am sure. I'm not there, but I can see a lot of outside bits, actually. There is, I mean, obviously inside bits in the blue oh, zone, but a lot of it's outside. Oh, Paul, you're so, in big yeah. trouble then. Yeah. Um, um, it's, 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 yeah, yeah. Tom, serious business. <laughs> now, What's serious, happening at the COP? Serious business, as you say. Well, nothing yet because it hasn't started, but that doesn't mean that there's not already in the news. We are recording this on Monday, the 27th of November, and a big report came out this morning from the BBC uh, who launched it this morning, who conducted an investigation in partnership with the Centre for Climate Reporting. And they got their hands on a whole bunch of meeting notes and internal briefings that were being exchanged between the COP28 team, ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, and Dr. Selton. And the long and short of it is, and we will get into this, that there is clear evidence that Dr. Selton was being encouraged by ADNOC and by his team to pursue interests of fossil fuel exploration and development in meetings that were being set up to deliver COP business and COP outcomes. So, for example, there is one point where we know that the document suggested telling a Colombian minister in a climate bilateral that ADNOC stands ready to support Colombia to develop fossil fuel reserves. There are talking points for 13 other countries, including Germany and Egypt and a whole range of others. Now, this broke about eight hours ago as we're recording this now. I've already done a whole bunch of media. I was on the BBC Today programme and a range of other things. Um, but this gives us a chance to kind of really pick this up and look at it. Christiana, what, how would you have responded if you had heard while you'd been the executive secretary of the UNFCCC that the COP president of a COP that you were hosting with that person was behaving in this way? Well, first, I would want to know who wrote those briefings because and on, under whose mandate. And I think that would be very important to understand. Hmm. Were those briefings written because the COP president requested them? That puts us in a very concerning scenario. Were those briefings written by some, you know, whatever, briefer down the ranks who somehow has not figured out that the COP is not gas tech, the COP is not ADIPEC. I mean, the Emirates just hosted one of the largest oil and gas uh, conferences just a few weeks ago. And 
And those conferences, GasTech, Adipag, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, are conferences where the oil and gas industry comes together to further their interests. That is not what the COP is. So someone does not understand the difference between a conference to further the interests of the gas industry and a gathering of all national, many subnational governments, many, many more than ever many stakeholders with a single purpose of protecting the planet and the humans on this planet from the negative consequences of the operation of substantially the oil and gas industry. Those are two very different agendas. And it is very dangerous to confuse those two agendas. So if I were in the COP presidency, I would now be digging in to where did those come from, who asked for them, what is going to be going on. But you know what, Tom? Here is my gut reaction to that. How interesting that this has come to a head just as people are beginning to register for the COP. And what comes to mind is, do you all remember when Volkswagen got caught red-handed for emissions reporting? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, hello. Here we are again, except it's not just one car company. It is the COP presidency. And what did Volkswagen do? They actually were forced just because of public expectation, they were forced to make a huge about face in their production line and truly turn over to electric models um, because Mm -hmm. they had to prove that mm, they were caught red-handed, but this is not really where they want to go. Well, hello? This has got to be the turnaround for the COP presidency. Whether he ordered them or not, whether he mandated those briefings or not. The issue is that the impression from outside is that the COP presidency has been caught red-handed. And therefore, the only possible reaction to this is actually to just not be, you know, wishy-washy at the COP they're going to have to make a huge about face because trust here is at negative 40. Right. Even just to get to zero. And just, they're they're not even at zero with trust. And Christiana, just, just to follow up on that one point, I mean, in the BBC article, um, they claim to have seen an email exchange in which COP28 team members were told that ADNOC and Mazdar talking points always needed to be included in the briefing notes that went to Dr. Sultan. So that apparently was a mandate that ad not briefing note briefing points should be included in the COP president's briefing. So well, to, anyway. to, to my point, right? Yeah. That is a complete confusion of the agendas, and I don't know how I, I've been <laughs> saying this. I think since January, right, that you cannot confuse the role that you're in. One thing is to lead um, ADNOG, Mazda is a completely different issue, but one thing is to lead um, the oil, the national oil and gas company. Um, And another thing is to exercise your responsibility as president of the COP in which you have to be impartial to your own political 
position as a country, impartial to all other political positions so that you can bring everybody together, and not neutral to outcome. That is the piece that many COP presidents forget. Mm. You have to be impartial to all positions, but not neutral to outcome. Every single COP has to further the world's efforts to accelerate decarbonization and to deepen resilience. They have mm. to. There's no other way. So this is a total confusion of roles and the price that they could pay is very high unless they do a Volkswagen move here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to um, pile in as much as I can entirely behind every single word and sentiment that Christiana's just said, and especially that marvelous Volkswagen metaphor. The integrity of government is, is, is you know, the, the, the notion of the sort of the um, spiritual duty of government, sacred duty, I should say, of government to, to protect the people and, and to be an independent arbiter of the public best interest. Uh, and so that, that's, a, that's a point extremely well made. I do think we, the whole world is looking at, you know, what can be the unifying outcome or the landing point, uh, given our starting point, and this makes things so much tougher for us. But there is, you know, there is a question about what now, what next? And certainly my analysis of this, and I'm not the world's greatest oil and gas expert, but to, to link it up, um, this this is the COP that's being held in, in an oil and gas superpower, for want of a better word. And you will have seen that the uh, FT and many other people reported that uh, oil, the IEA made very clear oil and gas producers should be spending about half their annual investment in clean energy projects by 2030. And so far, they account for just 1% of global green energy investment. I saw that. It's crazy. So, yeah. well, by the way, when I was laughing earlier, Christian, it was nervous laughter um, because you, you talked about this, not gas tech. I mean, totally. Okay, so something's going to have to happen here for for uh, an outcome that 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 we need. Um, it's a moment of truth, to quote the IEA in uh, COP28 in Dubai, for the oil and gas industry. It's facing a moment of truth. That's what uh, Fatih Birol said. I, I, my, my feeling is that there's a carbon budget. We all know what it is. There are moves in the world, for example, against coal. And were there to be fantastic pressure against coal, that might be one of those Volkswagen moments. Or the other one is to simply commit to the goals set by the IEA of 50% uh, of, of uh, investment by the oil and gas industry into renewables by, by 2030. But in a sense, you're, you're so correct, Christiana, to say their hand has now been forced. Something significant must happen. Okay, so, um, I mean, I think this is, and we don't want to spend all of our time on this, because obviously this is, you know, a, a, to some degree, a distraction from what really needs to happen. So thank you for drawing us back, Paul, to what kind of, you know, is the objective here, which is the the, the shift in investment patterns. But Christiana, what, what do you think needs to happen now to rebuild this, just very quickly? Because obviously, a few days before the COP, this is, um, you know, a, a, a very difficult thing to have happened just as everybody's arriving. What can he do to try to encourage people to feel that he is on their side as parties rather than pursuing his own agenda at this late stage? You know what I am going to be looking at with a microscope? His opening speech. Yes. Mm. Yeah. That is the moment in which he has to do a serious, 
serious exercise in humility and accountability and transparency. He has got to really do a mea culpa and say, that was a mistake. We realize that that is a mistake. And here is what I am going to do during the next two weeks. And here's what I invite parties to do. His opening speech, I think, is going to be definition. The, yeah, the definition of the cop. That's the one moment. That is the one moment that he has to come clean. He's got to come clean. And you know what's difficult about that, Tom? Yeah. Is that it, it's not a binary thing, right? It's not did he come clean or not. It's for some. Let's let's say that his speech is re- rewritten as we speak right now. It better be. Right. Um, and for for some, it will be a pretty good speech. And for some, it will be completely insufficient. So that's going to be the difficult, you know, um, area that he's going to have to manage. Because it's not, my, my point is, it's not just about the speech. The speech needs to redirect this, but then he is going to have to be on his toes with respect to transparency, accountability, and responsibility throughout the two weeks in everything that he does, everything that he does. I mean, I don't remember ever a cop president being subjected to such scrutiny as he will be, ever. Yeah. But by his own making. Yeah. And, I mean, fascinating moment, right? Because, as you say, the opening speech, he will be on the stage potentially with Antonio Guterres and two people who are on completely opposite ends of this conversation with Antonio Guterres telling everyone it's insufficient, the world is burning, we've reached global boiling point, we need to go further. And Dr. Sultan, who is the opposite, spare a thought for Simon Steele, who will also be there, who has to thread the needle between the two. <laughs> a slow nod from my co-hosts. Um and we, I know we only have a few minutes now until Nathaniel Stinnett arrives from the Environmental Voter Project. I wonder if um, we also, of course, need to cover, there's going to be a lot of substantive outcomes that we're going to have to drive at COP. It's worth bearing in mind, of course, we've said this before, this is the global stock take COP. This is the moment that we're looking in the mirror from the Paris Agreement to say, are we going as far as we need to? We know we're not doing enough. Uh, the recent report um, that came out, the GAP report, pointed out that rather than the 43% reduction that we need by 2030, we're actually on course for a 9% rise. That is disastrous for people around the world. So we need a credible and meaningful response from the COP to that piece of information to demonstrate to the world that we're serious about closing that gap. That's going to involve renewable energy. It's going to involve stuff around food and land and energy efficiency. All these technologies are deploying exponentially and we are finding real solutions, but they need to be given a boost at the COP as well to keep that exponential transformation unfolding. So it's almost feels to me like do things hold around the existing energy infrastructure of the world, finding a way to decarbonize itself at the rate required? Or are we going to see just massive national backlashes whereby um, the demand for those products is simply prohibited by ever more policy and regulation in different countries? It seems like the moment when the, the energy industry is either going to kind of respond or it's going to have its income cut off by law in every country. That's how it feels to me. Christiana, any responses on what you expect to see at the end of COP? You, you know what I'm really concerned about is that 
how much serious work is now going to be able to be done at the COP as opposed to just, you know, rumor wars? Yeah. How much, how much human attention, time, effort is going to go into either creating rumors, dispelling rumors, you know, um, checking out rumors. I mean, it is just going to be very, very difficult because at this COP, feelings and emotions are going to run much higher than thinking and logic. And I'm really concerned about that. I'm really concerned about that. This is going to be rumor mill for two weeks. And I mean, that's difficult enough as a distraction, but it also is a perfect opportunity for anyone who wants to slow progress, right? Because they can just oh, totally. get involved in that and, and it's, help, it's basically doing itself, but you can fan the flames and distract everybody. Totally. I mean, you can start rumors, you know, about everything. You can start rumors about, okay, he just last night. I mean, here's the really weird thing, right? Those who do not want any progress can start a rumor that last night, you know, the cop president met secretly with da-da-da, 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 you know, and signed da-da-da, da-da-da. I mean, can you imagine? Yeah. And he never did anything like that, but you just start the rumor. Yeah. I'm, it's, it's going to be such a rumor management nightmare. But maybe to pick up on the potential you identified, maybe a whole bunch of people who were not going to stand up will realize that they have to because things have got complicated. Meaning what, Paul? Well, I, I'm thinking of um, the slower moving, somewhat backsliding larger industries where executives feel that they're being held by an intergovernmental process and maybe they realize they're not being held by it and they have to show the leadership that they've been kind of hoping somebody else is going to and make mm. that phone call and make that phone call to their head of state or president or prime minister or whatever to say you know we do we do what we need to do well, we shall see. It's a few days now till it starts. We now know Joe Biden is not coming. Xi Jinping is not coming. But we are still expecting more than 150 heads of state. Um, and so more to come. Now, I think we're going to need to turn to our guest in just a moment. Um, and Christiana, I believe you have to immediately run off, unfortunately, to go and do something else. And we're going to miss you terribly. So very sad not to have you for the interview. But thanks for joining us for the chat. Thank you, and, guys. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Oh, my gosh, you guys, you're at the cop. You need to fix this. How's that for responsibility <laughs> on your shoulders? <laughs> No problem, Christiana. We'll get it done. Okay, good. Paul, Paul's got it. All right. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, Christiana. Thank you. So, Paul, we're going to bring in Nathaniel in a minute. Um, and Nathaniel Stinnett is somebody I've wanted to have on the podcast for a very long time. He runs the Environmental Voter Project. And um, he will explain what that is. But it's particularly relevant now because it will not have escaped your attention this week that uh, Trump advisors came out and said, if elected, he would immediately roll back the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, two of our favourite characters on the world stage, Ira and Bill, who have been the most ambitious climate laws in the US to help transform the economy. Um, which would, of course, given the time frame that we have to deal with climate change, be completely disastrous. So we need to make sure that doesn't happen. 
I mean, you know, and 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 Nathaniel is 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 in, working in the USA, but I just want to put in that global perspective. Argentina's new president uh, Javier Milei saying that uh, climate change is a socialist lie. Uh, the new um, the, the the leader of the uh, Party for Freedom in the Dutch Parliament, who may well become prime minister, saying we must stop being afraid of climate change. You know, across the world, uh, people are taking sides in a very bizarre way, and I'm just wondering. You know, I don't think we're going to cover this, but it. We need to have some kind of Pearl Harbor moment where sides unite around a common enemy, and we're we're going to have to try and find that. Maybe Nathaniel knows how. Well, I mean, there's very little you and I can do about US elections, but Nathaniel can do something. So let's get him on and have a chat with him. Sounds good. Before we go to the interview, I just wanted to tell you about a brilliant podcast I've been listening to that I think every single one of us will benefit from. It's called Therapy Works, and it's hosted by best-selling author and psychotherapist Julia Samuel. Now, on this podcast, Julia invites us into her therapy room, where she speaks to either a known or an unknown guest about a particular challenge they're facing. And the topics that she covers range from the difficulties of divorce, I know a thing or two about that, to life-changing illnesses, to struggles of motherhood, etc. Actually, very, very frequent struggles and challenges that we all share. What Julia does is she provides her guests with valuable advice and You will find that each episode resonates with us because we're human, regardless of the specific topic. What's even more special, and I say this as the mother of two daughters, what is even more special is at the end of every episode, Julia is joined by her two daughters who are both psychotherapists as well. And they reflect on their mother's therapy session and share their own insights. So it is quite a delightful conversation. And you can search for Therapy Works now wherever you get your podcast. And of course, subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Okay, now on to our interview of today. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism. And your work is about the most fascinating work I think I've come across for a very long time. You will get a chance to tell everyone about it. And but I'm going to start with a question which I think goes to the heart of what we're doing. And it was really fascinating reading the notes before uh, this interview. Uh, you describe yourself as not a policy expert. You said um, that you're laser focused on building political demand for climate. So can you explain what is the difference between policy and political demand for climate? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. And I kind of think about it as if it's a marketplace. We think of politics and policy making it as a marketplace. And on the supply side, we have politicians making policy that hopefully will help us achieve certain goals. But these policymakers can't just do whatever the hell they want. Hmm. They are political beings. And unless there is political demand in the marketplace for a certain kind of leadership, they're never going to supply it. Because the one thing that motivates politicians more than anything else 
is staying a politician, is winning mm-hmm. and losing elections. So unless oh, yeah. there isn't political demand for climate leadership, policymakers are never going to give it to us. Okay. So within that context, how has your organization kind of grown up to, to, to square that circle? Yeah. So there are, if you think about it, there are two ways to increase demand in the political marketplace for climate le- leadership. You could either get more voters to care deeply about climate, uh, what we like to call sort of persuasion or mind-changing or opinion-changing, or you could find people who already care deeply about it, yet they aren't voting, and you could change their behavior and turn them into voters. Now, I would argue that both of those are very, very important, but we live in a moment in time where it's become increasingly hard to change people's minds about anything especially science-related stuff and things having to do with climate change. And so what we do at the Environmental Voter Project is we focus on the behavior change aspect of it. We don't want to change people's minds and opinions. That's hard and messy and expensive. Instead, we find people who already care so deeply about climate and the environment that it's their number one priority over all other issues, yet they're not voting. And so then they're ripe for a purely behavioral intervention. And I won't claim that's easy. Of course it isn't. But it is easier and it's often cheaper than trying Mm. to change people's opinions or their minds. And is that, I mean, are there enough, I suppose the first question there is fascinating, are there enough of them to make a political difference? Because we're often told, oh, not enough people see climate as a top priority or whatever else. Not only are there enough, there are a shockingly large, almost a depressingly large (laughs) number of, of people who care deeply about climate yet don't vote. Now, obviously, it depends on the election because some people vote in some elections, but not other elections. But at the Environmental Voter Project, we identified a little over 12 million already registered voters who care deeply about climate and the environment yet skipped the most recent midterms. And we identified 8 million who skipped the last presidential election. Now, they're already registered to vote. There, there's wow. no, okay, there, so- there are no logistical hurdles. They just didn't walk out their door and cast a ballot on election day. The next question asks itself, here we go, why? 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for God's well, sake, people. <laughs> for God's sake is right. Well, Paul, you, you ask a good question. And unfortunately, this one is a little bit harder to answer because social scientists are really good at setting up experiments that tell you how to get people to do things, right? Mm-hmm. Like exercise or eat healthy or vote. What's a lot harder is to figure out why they don't do things. Uh Really, the only thing you can do when you're trying to figure out why, say, someone doesn't vote is ask them, is poll them. Hmm. And there's a whole bunch of biases that ruin your polls when you try to figure out why people aren't doing something that society views as important. And so when you ask people why they don't vote, they lie their pants off. And usually what they do is they give you the most socially acceptable excuse for not voting. Okay, that's my enormous caveat, which is to say it's really hard to measure this with precision. But here's what we do know. The first thing is when we look at this sort of idiosyncratic definition of environmentalists that that we use at the Environmental Voter Project, which is people who are likely to list climate or the environment as their number one priority, These people are disproportionately young, 
they're disproportionately people of color, and they're disproportionately lower income. So the first reason why these people don't vote has to do with mere demographic correlations. Young mm-hmm. people, lower income people, and people of color just vote less often, especially in the United States, where there's so much voter suppression against those groups. The second reason that we're pretty confident in is, again, at least in the United States, the environmental movement has been oddly apolitical for over a generation. And here's what I mean by that. When I was growing up, if you had asked me, what what does it mean to be a good environmentalist? I would have said, oh, you know, don't pollute, uh, don't litter, uh, recycle. Maybe more recently, I'd say, you know, ride my bike to work, change the electricity I consume. All of these things are, are important. But like, would you ever hear someone who cares about reproductive rights talk that way? Hmm. Would you ever hear someone who cares about gun control talk that way? I mean, these are all completely apolitical approaches to a huge systemic societal problem. And that's by design, right? I mean, the two of you know better than I do that the fossil fuel industry has had a very sophisticated PR campaign going for decades, essentially trying to convince us like, hey, don't pay attention to that coal-fired power plant back there. It's all your fault, Tom, for drinking out of a plastic water bottle. Right. Which is crazy, but we bought yeah. it. We bought it hook, line, and sinker, and we don't think of this stuff as political. We think of it as a personal behavioral choice. No, you're, you're absolutely right. That is the heart of it. And uh, it's it's such a when – you, when you put it in the context of um, kind of birth control or, 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 or uh, you know, dealing with the gun problem, it, it, it really makes sense. Nobody really sort of, you know, says, well, I'm going to buy less guns. You know, it's like you're not buying them anyway. Like, get over it. Right, right. This is a systemic, inherently political problem, yet many of us view climate activism and environmental activism in a purely personal behavioral way. And there's no doubt in my mind that that leads to a lot of these turnout problems. Yeah, and then just, you know, you're such a perfect analogy. Sorry, I'll I'll defer to you in a second, Todd, but it's like, you know, the horror of a mass shooting you know, with, with some kind of rifle or automatic weapon or all the, those terrible stories. And then the idea you would respond by saying, I'm going to tell my cousin to to get rid of, you know, her revolver. It's like right. th- there's, there's no connection, right? So yeah. why do we do it? So, I mean, that's a fascinating analogy. I love that. And and just so so as we get past the why, so we identify these people. I mean, that's a significant number of people, enough to tip a presidential election, potentially, depending on where they live. I'd love to ask you about that as well. But so... How do you then, if they're if they're from communities that disproportionately don't vote already, you already have your work cut out, right? Trying to get them to show up, even if you know who they are. How do you go about doing that? And how expensive is it, I suppose, would be the other question. Yeah, so let me answer the second question first. Uh, it is much cheaper to change people's behavior than it is to change their minds, in part because... The really expensive modes of communication, you know, TV and things like that, just really don't work that well when you're when you're getting into beha- pure behavior change messaging, trying to get people to vote. TV and things like that are really good for changing opinions and changing minds. But what we're talking about here, to get to the first part of your question, is digital ads, direct mail, door knocking, sending postcards to people, calling them on the phone. At the Environmental Voter Project, we've got over 6,000 volunteers who help us do all of these things using behavioral science-informed messaging just to nudge these people 
into becoming better voters. And I think mm. crucially, we work year round because our, our ultimate goal is to change people's habits. We want to build an unstoppable army of environmental voters who never miss an election. And so what that means is, you know, even if you're not a behavioral science, you can understand that if you're trying to change someone's habits, you can't just talk to them every two years when there's a big, sexy federal election going on. You've got to take advantage of every opportunity to talk to them. Yeah. And then finally, I'll just say, because uh, I, I went over sort of the logistics of how we do it, the messaging that we use, I think, is really interesting and, and somewhat counterintuitive. We communicate with people as though they're social beings rather than rational beings. And here's what I mean by that. We do not try to rationally convince people of the importance of voting. Rational frameworks often sound nice, but they rarely work because deep down we all know that our, our one vote is almost never going to determine the outcome of an election. Correct. And so instead, what we do and it isn't like we've invented this ourselves. We stand on the shoulders of, of sociologists and behavioral psychologists. What we do is we appeal to something much more powerful, which is that human beings are an almost pathologically social species. Hmm. You know, like we're always looking to each other for social cues as to what's cool or what's respectable or what's appropriate behavior or what's inappropriate behavior. And these social norms are much stronger drivers of human behavior than any rational calculations might be. And so I'm happy to get into specific messages if you're interested, but but at the theoretical I'd level. I'd love to. Can, can you just hear what, just a couple of examples would be really helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one example is just pure juvenile peer pressure. Hmm. We will text someone and say, hey, uh, Tom, did you know last time there was an election, 137 people on your block of Main Street turned out to vote? I mean, it's like the right. kind of crap you would hear at like the fourth grade playground, right? But it works. <laughs> Peer pressure works. Another nice. thing that we use is uh, loss aversion, okay? So the loss aversion is uh, a, a pretty popular psychological uh, uh, sort of theory that says people worry more about losing $10 than they get excited about getting $10, so how do we apply that to the voting context? Well, let's say that, Paul, you're someone who votes in presidential elections, but you mm -hmm. never vote in any other election. Uh -huh. And we've got a midterm election coming up here. And I want to get you to vote in the midterm election for the very first time. Well, instead of messaging to you about doing something new for the first time, I'm going to flip the script and make it seem like you're losing something. I'm going to say, hey, Paul, congratulations on being a good voter in the presidential election. Don't ruin your new good voting history by missing the midterm. Don't lose this thing of value that you've now accrued. Don't screw it up. And that sends turnout through the roof. Hmm. And then a final example, because I think this is something that maybe many of your listeners may have experienced themselves if they've ever volunteered for a campaign. Oftentimes, we'll knock on a door, and of course, at, at the Environmental Voter Project, we're only talking to people who don't vote. We ask them if they intend to vote in the upcoming election. And most people will say yes, because they want to be thought of as a good voter. And then it's like we've trapped them. Because <laughs> what, what we're then able to do is go right back to them right before the election and say, hey, uh, Tom, I just want to remind you, a few months ago, you said you were going to vote. 
And we know it's important to you to follow through on your promises. And, and Tuesday's your opportunity to keep your promise. Well, now, very nice. instead of me trying to convince you of the value of your one vote over a denominator of millions, I'm equating the act of voting with whether you're an honest person who keeps his promises or not, hmm. which is a very strong societal norm. Hmm. And little nudges like that, that never even mention climate or the environment, can really start to drive voter turnout and change these, these non-voting environmentalists into super voters. Well, I mean, bless, bless your 6,000 volunteers, by the way. I just want to kind of view a big heart out there. I'd be pressing the kind of heart button on the podcast if you could get it through your ears. Um, can I, can I, I we, 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 we must come back. I know Tom has a point, but can I ask you a question which is just... It's troubling the world right now. And I know it's a little away from your core expertise, but you are such an expert in this. What's going on with the polarization about, uh, you know, the, so to say, populists in many, many countries, extreme right wing, um, using climate change as a kind of uh, an issue to divide people? Uh, do you know where that's coming from and uh, how does it play out? Yeah, so... This, like your previous question, is something that I think I have some some informed opinions on, but it's very hard to, to measure with real scientific precision. Yeah. But what I think is going on is not that political players are using climate to divide people, but rather people are already so politically divided that anything and everything becomes partisan. Right. You know, if you rewind the clock 20, 30, 40 years ago, things like religion or race or, or class were often sort of the great societal sorting mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Now, at least in the United States, but I think it's the case almost everywhere, political tribalism is upstream of almost everything else. Right. And whether you are right wing or left wing, then pretty much determines how you will view anything. I mean, we saw it in COVID, right? Like it determines whether you'll wear a mask or not. It determines so many weird little things, even something that we think in, in a more rational world, like addressing the climate crisis, wouldn't be a partisan issue. And, and I think that's maybe the, the more precise way to view what's going on here. Hmm. Um, that's so interesting. I know we're, we're running out of time in a minute. I just want to ask you, you know, very tangibly, we were all obviously um, reminded of the peril that we face when these interviews came out this week that indicated how clearly the Trump campaign was developing its intentions around repealing the Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law. These wins that we fought for decades to achieve and that have really sort of propel the decarbonization of the US economy. And I mean, my God, we're playing with fire looking at the recent polls. What needs to happen in you? I mean, obviously, many things need to happen. But in terms of your field, in an ideal world, what would you now mobilize over the next year to try to actually empower and encourage these environmental voters in the US who don't want this to happen to step up and stop it from happening? Is it resources you're short of? Is it data? Is it volunteers? What do you need to sort of play the ace that you've got in your hand to try and help stop this happening? Yeah. So first, let me tell you what it isn't. It is not data hmm. in, the, in the creepiest sense, like we literally know by name and street address who all of these non-voting environmentalists are. 
Moreover, we have now run, at least at the Environmental Voter Project, over 300 randomized control trials telling us which messages work best to turn these non-voters into more consistent voters. Now all we need is to reach them. And in order to reach them, what we need is funding. Like any nonprofit, we need funding. And volunteers. Hmm. And volunteers. So those are the two things that we need. And perhaps, I think, most importantly, we need them early. Hmm. We need them early. Obviously, the last few weeks before an election are a crucial moment in time to talk to people. But that doesn't mean that the first nine months of the year are useless. They're not. Oftentimes, that's when there's less static and you can communicate with someone more clearly. And so we need early volunteers and early funding. And just to give you an idea of some of the numbers at play here. I I just just one question I want you to dig in on that and then we'll come back is – it's obviously in the US, not every state matters. If swing states, there are certain swing states that we have to, I mean, are you also thinking about like, okay, Pennsylvania, we've got 70,000 voters. We know where they are. We know that would swing the election. Are you looking at it through that kind of very tactical lens? Yes, we have yeah. 410,000 already registered climate first voters in Pennsylvania who have never voted in a presidential election before. And that would be enough to tip the state under recent margins in the state. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh, yes. In Arizona, we've got over 300,000. Arizona was decided by, I believe, 10,500, 10,600 votes. I mean, so you don't have to be wildly (laughs) successful in some of these states to make a world changing difference, is what I was about to. I was about to quote Donald Trump and say, all we need is. (laughs) 13,600 votes. <laughs> but exactly. I'm not going to. Right, question. My actual question is, can we, can we volunteer from outside the USA or can we <laughs> provide funding from outside the USA? Absolutely. Absolutely to both. Go to environmentalvoter.org. Link in the show notes. Link, Link in, in the, the show, show notes. notes. We make it so easy to volunteer. We make it so easy to donate. And just to give you an idea of some of the numbers at play here, when... Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton in 2016. It was decided by 77,000 votes in three states. Four Um. years later, when Joe Biden beat Donald Trump in 2020, it was decided by 43,000 votes in three states. For better or for worse, when it comes to all of our anxiety, we are living in a time of absurdly close elections where one butterfly flapping its wings over the North Atlantic can change the outcome of everything. So Mm -hmm. yeah, your volunteer time and your donation matters enormously. But but if I can just complete the circle on the Brad Raffensperger conversation that was tape recorded for anyone who wants to listen to it, we're not actually asking for any change in the determination of the votes cast. You're simply asking for people who care about climate change to get out and vote, right? Yes. And here's why that's so important. The first thing is the thing that might be obvious to a lot of the, a lot of your listeners is you can impact who wins and loses elections. But the second thing that a lot of people, even people who consider themselves really politically involved in the United States don't know is this. Who you vote for is secret, but whether you vote or not is public record. And not only is it public record, it is literally the essential building block to how all campaigns and elections are run. Because if I'm trying to elect someone governor of Pennsylvania 
And I have a public voter file where I can look up everybody who typically votes in gubernatorial elections and the people who don't. Well, who do you think I'm going to pay attention to? Who do you think I'm going to send like people to their doors? Who do you think I'm going to poll to figure out what issues they care about? So the reason it's important to vote is not just to help determine who wins and loses elections, but because it is the only way to be a first-class citizen in the United States. For better or for worse, politicians simply do not care about the priorities of non-voters, and they know who doesn't vote by name and street address. It is so easy for them to ignore non-voters. I, I'm loving the way, you know, given the slightest provocation, you will turn it back to the individual and who it is. I can absolutely see why you're effective in this role and how this is happening. Um, we're unfortunately going to have to wrap in a minute. We have a closing question to ask you. But Paul, anything burning you want to ask before I get to that point? Well, I'm actually more like a, just a plain old compliment, if I may. Thank you for working out where the, you know... For, Tom Connick says I spend all my time on podcasts looking for church, uh, quotes from Churchill, but I have one in my head. <laughs> the, but it's, it is appropriate. The odds are great, our margins small, the stakes are infinite. Thank you for, for getting this to turn out right and doing what we got to do because it must turn out right. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. Um, that was very appropriate, Paul. Very nicely done. I will stop badgering you about Churchill quotes for a couple of weeks now that that one was so nicely placed. Um, so, Nathaniel, um, we ask everyone the same question when we're ending up, and I think particularly relevant for you as you think about where we are with this huge opportunity that you have identified that we have sort of leveraged but need to leverage more. Um, can you please give us something that you are feeling optimistic about and something that you feel outraged about? All right. In fact, well, do it the other way around. Outrage first. And then yeah, let me start with the outrage so we don't leave on a downer. How about that? <laughs> uh, so as the two of you, given your background, are, are, are no doubt aware, uh, at COP26 in Glasgow just two years ago, governments agreed to phase out fossil fuel subsidies. Mm -hmm. And I recently read that a new IMF report now calculates that just since the Glasgow summit, just since two years ago, fossil fuel subsidies have grown from $2 trillion a year to $7 trillion. My God. So we yeah. are giving more and more taxpayer money to huge corporations so they can profit off a product that kills people. And dear God, I mean, I, I can't imagine any ethical or religious framework that can justify that. It, it's unconscionable. So... So how's that? How's That's that? Good. Yeah, no, pretty good. Yeah. I'm uh, we'll just listening to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But optimism. Uh, one thing that fills me with optimism is the legions of political volunteers who have sprung up in the United States since Trump was elected. These are people who don't just show up every two years for big elections. Like, they're calling voters right now in these dinky little special elections in Florida and Texas. And I'm optimistic not just because these volunteers are doing important, unheralded work, but because they're happy and proud and, and filled with purpose. And they're, they're showing all of us that solidarity and building a community of activists is a simple way to begin dealing with all of the anxiety that I'm sure all of your listeners live with every day yeah. as our democracies and our climate seems to be falling apart. And so that, gosh, does that 
seem like a light in the darkness to me. And I'm, I'm so proud of and grateful that I can, I can work with all these volunteers. What a great answer. Love that. Nathaniel, thank you so Solidarity, much. Solidarity, diminishing anxiety is actually quite a powerful proposition. That it is. <laughs> take yeah. you up on that. Nathaniel, thank you so much. Honestly, what a, what a, what a breath of fresh air to, to, to understand your vision and how you've effectively enacted it. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you. And if I could give a message of solidarity, it's, it's an honor to be in this movement with the two of you. Thank you for all the work that you do. Thanks so thank much. You. Cheers. Bye-bye. So, Tom, what did you make of that? I mean, what a breath of fresh air. I thought that was fantastic. And I mean, you know, on one level, and I think or many of the good ideas of the world sort of fall into this category, you know, it's incredibly obvious, right? People who care about climate and don't vote should be encouraged to vote. Um, but actually, it's so powerful, it could potentially change so much in the US and I'm sure beyond. So um, I know he's been doing this since 2015 and working away and building resources and this enormous army of volunteers. I just thought after the conversation we had at the beginning that was about all the problems in COP, this was so inspiring to talk to somebody who was really getting on with it and changing the world. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, for me, the, the real art, uh, the genius, if, if you will, of this particular intervention is to look at the system and to find the specific leverage point where a, a, a certain amount of effort, and it's not small, but concentrated effort at one particular point changes some gigantic binary outcome. And so, um, you know, 10 out of 10 for, for system intervention analysis, really, and, really and, great stuff. And, and what always blows my mind in the climate movement is when you find people like that who are working on these incredibly powerful leverage points, they're always under-resourced. You sort of think, well, how does this person not have all the resources that they could possibly need, given the importance of what they're working on? But it's consistently the case. Uh, well, they haven't always got the, the brands or whatever, but that's a, that's another topic for another day. Can you leave us with the last thought of, of where, your, where your heart is as you head into this uh, series of meetings? And, and we will have the privilege to comment again, I think, in a week. But I just wondered if there was something there, Tom. Well, look, I mean, I think that um, I think this is going to be a difficult cop. I think we always knew that from the beginning. And I think what we've what's been revealed this week has just made it more difficult. And, you know, got to do. We don't have a choice. It's not like we can say, oh, it's too difficult, so let's give up on this one and try again next year. <laughs> we still have to deliver the substantive outcomes. The global stock take is still telling us we're going in the wrong direction. Um, I still think that actually there is a lot to be done on the exponential transformations that are unfolding in our economy. Yeah. That can be accelerated with commitments here on renewable energy, energy efficiency, food, land use, a whole range of different things. And I'm really, I, I remain hopeful that in two weeks' time we will say, you know what, maybe everything wasn't perfect, but maybe all of this controversy at the beginning of the COP made us just pull together and make it happen. So let's see. We can, we must, we will. Thank you, Tom. Uh, lovely to spend time with you today. And I guess we'll be back in a week. We will. And we have a poet to introduce. Wow, fantastic. Yeah. So hot poets who will be at COP28 working in with the UNFCCC's Resilience Volunteers in the Blue Zone. Um, I'm hoping we get to see a bit of them in person this week, but for now we have them on the podcast. So please enjoy these closing words from hot poets and we will see you all next week. Bye. Bye. 
Hello, I'm Chris Redmond. I am co-director alongside Live Talk of Hot Poets. We put poetry and science together to imagine better possible futures. We are all about supporting the science, about changing the narrative, because we think artists have a key role to play in the climate space, because we work with the imagination. And if we can imagine futures that are desirable, we can create them, right? So we're working with the UNFCCC's Resilience Frontiers, which is a project that imagines and maps pathways to a future that we all want and so we're going to be at COP if you're there come find us we're going to be performing with Resilience Frontiers we're going to be also releasing eight new films uh, exploring these pathways if you're not at COP then do find us at hotpoets.org or on our socials hot underscore poets this is a poem that I wrote in collaboration with 3M uh, I spoke to three scientists Jay Shri Seth Corey Sauer and Jens Eichler and I interviewed each of them and then I wrote wrote this to explore the intersection between science, art and the imagination. I am outraged by the continuing fossil fuel subsidies given out by our government and I am optimistic about every single scientist that I meet because it gives me hope. Thank you. Blink once for 20 years. Do you see it? A future. What colour's yours? This is an exercise in learning how to see with our eyes closed. It's how every book is written, how a child springs from birth to roller skating backwards singing Aretha Franklin. We made electric lights and computers in our palms, learned to navigate the oceans by studying stars. We've got game in the unknown. Here, we drink clean water. Air is pure. Earth has been handed back to itself. Great apologies have been made and accepted. Forests and cities sing in symbiosis, harmonising the clang and funk of species that once teetered on edges. You can get an electric bus anywhere. You can recharge your AI assistant whilst growing your own broccoli, know your own footprints and exactly how and where to balance the marks you make, how to take in exchange. We build in circles, waste is a dirty word, profit comes in many measurements. We are no longer frogs, slowly boiling ourselves. Anyone can paint a picture if they close their eyes. What do we need to get here? Today, I ask three scientists. Jay Shri tells me, we need better stories with different ideas of what science can be. PhD in chemical engineering, Hall of Famer, smart mischief in her eyes. She grew up in Northern India in a family of engineers swapped their question of how does it work for her own, how can I help? 30 years and 80 patents later, she's still asking. Jens explains to me the meaning of Spazierendenken, a German phrase for thinking while walking, how he knows the best ideas arrive in nature, how the default mode network is the brain's screensaver, innovations, keys, cracked codes flicker to light when we sit under apple trees. He's leading on the green hydrogen economy. His Zoom background is a pen-drawn light bulb. In Minnesota, Corey is all gym arms, t-shirt and lab goggles. He read the IPCC report with fellow scientists and asked, what do we need? He tells how his team have built filters to extract CO2 from air and how each method of trapping and storing it is a sped up version of what nature does. 
What is the collective noun for scientists who care? A question? An inquiry? A collaboration? I know none of these are nouns. Sometimes we have to think outside. Innovation doesn't know boundaries. It doesn't conform. Challenges us to create, to transform. Chanting change songs, painting visions of safety in every colour of every alphabet whilst harnessing hydrogen to green steel. Electric car batteries humming circular symphonies. Turbines like great kinetic dandelion sculptures. Smart energy grids responding to our every step. This is the biggest work of art we've ever made and it's going to take all of us. The responsibility to lead the change lies with those who are willing to change how we lead, how we pose a question. Blink, do you see it? So there you go, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. I'm Clay, producer of this podcast, Hot Poets. The poem is Blink by Hot Poets co-founder Chris Redmond, commissioned by 3M as a part of a series of poems in collaboration with UNFCCC's Resilience Frontiers. And there's music by Chris and his other project, Tung Fu, which is a great band name and I love it. Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Liv, for letting us share some of your poetry and music on the podcast with our listeners. This poem, believe it or not, was actually a world premiere, but on uh, November 30th, uh, listeners, the film for Blink will go live on Hot Poets YouTube channel, so be sure to watch and share that when it airs. And as Chris mentioned, Hot Poets will be at COP28 performing with Resilient Frontiers. More info at hotpoets.org. All the socials are in the show notes below. And this is very cool. This was fun. Poets and science coming together, changing the narrative. We love it. Also, speaking of things we love, thank you to Nathaniel Stinnett from Environmental Voter Project for coming on the podcast. Just to reiterate, yes, even if you are outside the U.S., you can help get more registered U.S. environmental voters to show up to vote environmentalvoter.org. Check the description below. I'm sure we'll be checking in with Nathaniel as election day 2024 comes closer into view and looking forward to that. So that was awesome. Okay. Um, last week, as I was cooking up some food, I told you on the podcast here that Tom and Christiana and Paul are coming to dinner this week on the show. And I'm sure at this point you've figured out that dinner has been rescheduled. And they're still coming to dinner, but that episode will go out on December 21st or someday around it. Basically, due to scheduling and holiday crunch, we actually recorded it today. And truthfully, I think it's one of our best episodes. You all sent in your most challenging holiday dinner climate questions that you get, and we did not hold back on getting into them. So, I'm ready for the holiday dinner table after just being present and recording the podcast. I can't wait to share that with you. We are so excited to end the year with that episode. So look forward to that. Coming soon. Okay, best way to not miss the holiday episode and our analysis of what is going on at COP is to hit subscribe or follow 
there's a follow button. Some apps it's subscribe, some apps it's follow. And also we will be publishing newsletters about what is going on at COP. So you can go to outrageandoptimism.com to hit subscribe to the newsletter. Our newsletter is great. Shout out to Zoe. All right, we'll see you right back here for our next episode, which I actually don't know when that's coming, but I'll see you then. Okay, bye. Bye.